Well, hello, everyone. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the LSE for today's event, which forms part, as you know, of the LSE's festival, New World Disorders, which is taking place starting this Monday and lasts through to um, Saturday, 2nd of uh, March. My name is Matthew Jones. I'm head of the International History Department here at the LSE, and I'm very pleased to welcome you all today here uh, for this event. Now, the theme of the festival, of course, is New World Orders, and today we'll delve into the past and see how a new world order was created by the peace settlements after the First World War. The Versailles Treaty of 1919 in particular, of course, has been blamed for inflaming German nationalism, enabling Hitler's rise, and causing the Second World War. Yet other commentators have seen the treaty as too weak rather than too harsh, or as being neither consistently conciliatory nor consistently repressive. I suppose that's a view identified most of all with A.J.P. Taylor. Thus falling between two stalls. This session will reappraise the peace conferences after the First World War, an exceptional, mo exceptional moment when it briefly seemed possible to reshape the international order. So we have three panellists here to offer their views on this critical period of 20th century history. Uh, first of all, we have Professor Annika Mombauer, Professor of European, Modern European History at the Open University. Annika is a specialist on the First World War and its origins, and will talk about the German perspective on the peace settlement. We have Professor Mick Cox um, from our own LSE Ideas in the International Relations Department. And Mick will talk about the work he's doing right now on J.M. Keynes and the economic aspects to the peace settlement. And finally, we have De Professor David Stevenson, who is the Stevenson Professor of International History at the LSE. And he has published on the causes, course, and consequences of the First World War. And today, David will discuss the security, disarmament, and the League of Nations aspects to the settlement. So we'll mainly focus on the British, American, and French sides to the question. Now, each of our panellists will talk for about 15 to 20 minutes, and then we'll have a chance to have some questions. Uh, for those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's events are um, hashtag New World Disorders and hashtag LSE Festival. And I'd ask you all to put your phones on silent oh, yes. so that there are no disruptions to the event as we go through. I also should say the event is being recorded and will hopefully make, be making um, it available as a podcast um, in due course. Now, the order in which we're going to take the papers and the presentations, first of all, we'll hear from Mick on Keynes and the peace settlement, then from David on collective security and the League of Nations, and finally from Annika on the German aspects. So, over to you, Mick. Thank you very much. Firstly, I should say this is a piece of brazen self-publicity. Uh, I'm bringing out a, an, another edition of the economic consequences of the piece this year with uh, my cover. So uh, this is just, I'm, I'm promoting both myself and J.M. Keynes, uh, Keynes being the greater of the two men, I would imagine. A um, hundred years ago in Paris, the politicians of the world, uh, sans uh, the Soviet Union and to some degree sans Germany, sat down to make a peace after the war a war that had led to the deaths of millions, uh, destroyed three empires, led to a revolution in Russia, and witnessed the massive shift in economic and political power uh, from Europe to the United States of America. It was by any measure a formidable task, it took six months to hammer out, and concluded in late June with the signing of the treaty in that famous moment in the Hall of Mirrors in Versailles. 
At one level, I suppose one could say, and many at the time believed, at least that this was an immense achievement, just to have got there. But one, an achievement that very rapidly came under sustained fire. Uh, within the United States, when Woodrow Wilson returned and failed to get through the league and anything else, within Britain itself, where the reaction was both positive and negative, <laughs> Uh, in Germany, of course, and we'll talk about that later on, where the overwhelming response was negative, and uh, unsurprisingly within the new revolutionary state of Russia, although the book was rapidly translated into Russian, and Lenin and Trotsky uh, read it with, with great interest. But nor did the fire against the peace thereafter diminish, and as Germany and Europe lurch, lurched, from the uncertain times that was the 1920s to the disaster that was the 1930s. The voices claiming that their side, the peace treaty, had failed as a peace grew ever more loud. There were two broad views about the uh, deeper causes of the failure. One was articulated in 1939 itself by a, a man who was then professor of international politics in the University of Wales, Aberystwyth, and his name was Edward Halleck Carr. And he wrote a book, long before he wrote all his work on the Soviet Russia and what is history, called The Twenty Years' Crisis, published in 1939, 20 years after the Versailles Peace Treaty. And for Carr, at least, the problem with Versailles was it was too liberal. It was the product of utopian thinking. It was too Wilsonian. Versailles was a failed liberal peace in a world that demanded realism, demanded an understanding of power. We placed all our bets on the League of Nations. We placed all our bets on the liberal notion of changing norms against war. And maybe more significantly, possibly, than any other, we placed our bets, said Carr, on the liberal principle of self-determination, which turned out rather than to be something which solved problems, only reinforced them. This piece, he argued, could survive the more stable 20s, but could not survive the 1930s. 20 years earlier, very soon after the piece had been signed, within three to four months, of course, there was another view promoted by another influential writer of the time, one who was actually at Versailles, and indeed, by the way, Carl was also at Versailles, and this was the view propounded by John Maynard Keynes in... Uh, what has become, I suppose, one of the most influential books of the 20th century, and certainly one that shaped uh, the debate uh, about the, the peace itself. And that, of course, was called The Economic uh, Consequences of the Peace. Now, I won't go into all the backstop back about how Keynes actually wrote it, how speedily he wrote it, how he sat down in Charleston, <coughs> in, uh, in, in the Sussex Downs, reflecting on the peace that he'd been involved in, the mood that he was in, which audience he was appealing to, and why psychologically as well as economically he actually wrote it. There's much speculation uh, uh, about all that. Somebody once said to me the reason Keynes wrote this book was because he had a bad conscience about the war in which he had never believed and nor had many of his uh, friends and colleagues from the Bloomsbury set and people like Lytton Strachey, Virginia Woolf and the rest. Maybe so. But for Keynes, it was almost the opposite interpretation, opposite view than that which was later put forward by Carl, the base of the piece wasn't that it was liberal, it was not liberal enough. It was a harsh piece. 
The term Carthaginian peace is often used to define what Keynes actually said in the, in the economic consequences. Actually, he hardly ever used the term at all, but that's another matter. It was a harsh peace that, if implemented in full, argued Keynes, did not allow for the revival of Germany, and more importantly, of course, because the book is a very European book, by the way, it talks about a European reconstruction after a European civil war, it would not allow for the revival of Europe. The book, of course, is interesting in its own right. As you know, it begins with the debate about the structure of European power. It moves on, of course, to the treaty. It has, of course, that famous chapter dealing with the personalities. And that's one of the reasons, I think, that it was so popular with so many people. Those pen portraits of Lloyd George, Clemenceau, and above all, Woodrow Wilson. A, a later writer, Peter Clark, called it a course of course, political striptease. Everybody loved the book so much because Keynes was there and gave you the inside of you, not only of the conditions of reparations and the issues of what had been done to Germany and why the peace would not work, but also those, those extraordinary and very deeply unfair uh, pen portraits, but nonetheless had impact. There's absolutely no doubt about it. The reception, of course, afforded the book was huge. For those of you who know the backgrounds of the book, it sold out really within months, and it sold 100,000 copies uh, within a year. It was translated into around uh, 11 languages. It may have had an enormous impact on the debate back in the United States. As Wilson went back, it had a big impact in Germany and in Austria, rapidly translated into German. And as you can imagine, given the, the, the tone of the book, which looked like it was quote-unquote pro-German, which I think is a misunderstanding. Nonetheless, the book did not go down terribly well in France, where it was seen as letting Germany off and not being critical enough of Germany, and, and Germany having caused the war. Keynes, I think, never bought into that particular argument. The book was translated into several languages. Winston Churchill wrote the, read the book over the weekend, he must have got the book on the Friday and had it read by the Sunday, and this is what he said. I got it on Saturday and read it on Sunday. I really must congratulate you on a most brilliant piece of work. The substance of it filled me with deepest gloom, but the treatment is a triumph. It is as easy to read as the best novel, this is one of the reasons for its appeal, and supremely lucid. It never occurred to me that the subject is technical or about economics, <laughs> and might in other words be stodgy. Even those who didn't like the book, and there were equal numbers who didn't like the book, at least admitted to its brilliance and its lucidity. Um, Dennis, Robertson, Dennis Robertson, an economist at the time, said, Keynes has written a very powerful and important book. Others didn't like the book, including people down at the British Academy, who then denied Keynes uh, membership of the British Academy for which he had been nominated. That was another part of the establishment. That's not the whole part of the British establishment. And its response is clear. So two views, to put, put it simply, of, of the piece. One which you said it's too liberal, and another one saying, actually, it's not liberal enough. Now, it took some time for a reaction to this book by Keynes to set in, for a new view of the Versailles Treaty to be promoted, a view deeply at odds with what Keynes had written back in 1919. There were two waves of what we might call revisionism. The first I call the French wave, uh, started by the remarkable and brilliant young economist who studied here at the LSE, by the way, and his father also taught at the LSE. The father was called Paul Montu, and the name of the writer was Etienne Montu, and wrote a wonderful book 
in many ways, whether you agree with it, it's another question, called the economic consequences of Mr. Keynes. Uh, <laughs> it's a rather good title. Montu, of course, was an extraordinary man because the book was published posthumously. Montu was a war hero. He joined the Free French. He fought with the Free French and was killed finally in action uh, in, in, in an aircraft accident or being shot down over Germany. So he had an enormous potential as what he would fulfill. And the book itself is written typically of Montu as, as, a, wonder, as a wonderful rebuttal of, of Keynes and indeed had an enormous impact at the time. It was written in the United States and published posthumously in 1946. The essence of what Montu said, in, in, a brilliant, in a brilliant book, really, a book, by the way, he characterised Keynes' own book as similar in power and lucidity to Edmund Burke's attack on the French Revolution. Compared. He said, this is a brilliant book by any measure. The only problem is it's fundamentally wrong. And there were two things wrong with it. One was the economics. I won't go into all the detail there. He overestimated, the pro he underestimated all the issues for France. He, he didn't take into account the German recovery was much better. He also argued, and this was the really powerful moral point, that basically Keynes had created, I feel guilty about Versailles syndrome, which meant that the British ruling establishment could not therefore sustain a, a serious early critique of Hitler because they were therefore more inclined towards appeasement. In other words, the book morally undermined the political resolve of the British establishment through the 1930s and prepared in some part the ground for, for, for the appeasement policy which followed. Following Montu, and again I'm not going to go into too much detail here, I don't need to because I want to make my comments as brief and as sharp as possible, there was a second wave by what I might call more regular historians coming through the 60s and the 70s, writers such as Sally Marx, uh, Stephen Shooker, Mark Trachtenberg, William Keeler, uh, Neil Ferguson, of course, jumped in on this one because he doesn't really very much like Keynes or indeed Keynesianism. And of course, uh, what I call our own, although she is Canadian, Margaret uh, Macmillan's wonderful book. Very recently, a German historian, and you can, you can feel the, the vehemence against Keynes, it's quite interesting, it's very strong. Jurgen Tamke wrote a book called A Perfidious Distortion of History. And I think you can get, get the, what's in the book from just the title of it. Last year, 31st of October in 2018, Margaret Macmillan, in an article in the New Statesman called Keynes and the Cost of Peace, she returned to the attack. She'd never liked the book, and she certainly doesn't like Keynes. Should, I suppose, also remember that Margaret Macmillan's great-grandfather was Lloyd George, who had been savagely attacked by Keynes. So there's something quite personal, but I don't think that's Margaret's line, but I think there's, there's an aspect there as, as much as a critique of the of the pieces. So she called this in her New Statesman article, Keynes, she rather diminishes it, Keynes's little book with a very dry title, down by faint praise, uh, written by a brilliant self-assured British economist. She said, would you believe economists? It was a very good point. Saying that at the LSE, I suppose, is a tantamount to professional suicide. But there we go. Um, who always thought he was right against the assembled state. They were always wrong. And what Margaret does there, again, is make the point that the book still performs a function of talking about the piece in such a way as to denigrate. And, of course, much of the new historiography, which I mentioned, beginning uh, with Montu, but continuing with uh, Margaret's work herself, is to kind of show that the piece itself wasn't quite so bad. 
uh, that Germany did not suffer quite so much, that reparations did not do quite so much damage, and that the book itself, The Economic Consequences, had done a lot of damage itself in both distorting understanding of what happened in the 20s and indeed may have even politically prepared the way for appeasement in the 1930s. You can see, really, that this is a very, very sharp debate because it's not just about reparations and how much coal comes out of the Tsarland or Silesia. It is about fundamentals of what subsequently happens to, to, to Europe. Yet Margaret concedes, as indeed do all the critics... There's one, thing, there's one thing about Keynes's book. It kind of goes on and on and on. Well, I'm trying, I suppose I'm continuing the on and on and on part of this. And even Margaret argues that in spite of all the historian's efforts, <laughs> in spite of what Montu wrote back in 46, in spite of the obvious refutation of so much of what Keynes has said within the book, nonetheless the book continues to influence and shape the debate, and it certainly does even a century, a century later. And I'll ask the question, why? Why is it that a book which has in sense, been strongly refuted by a number of major historians, uh, both on this side of the Atlantic and on the other side of the channel and the other side, why is it the book still exercises the power and the influence that it does? How is it that it still away becomes a, the point of reference in any first point of debate, thinking about the Versailles Peace Treaty of 1990, 100 years later, and that debate goes on. Well, the first thing, of course, for every critic of Carr, there is an apologist or a defender. And they are there in very large numbers, there's no doubt about it. All of his major biographers, Roy Harrod, uh, Mogrich, and of course, Skidelsky, in his three volumes, are strong defenders, not only of Keynes more generally, but also of the economic consequences of the peace. And these are powerful figures in this debate. Skidelsky, most obviously, but also many others as well. And a few, few more that I haven't even mentioned. Adam Tooze, I think in one of the great books, De Deluge, says the, the economic consequences of the peace stands as a reflection of and a major contributor to the mood of disillusionment that followed Versailles. So even if he doesn't agree with everything that's in the book, he says this is therefore a very significant book because it tells you much about disillusionment and pessimism following the high hopes that had been there in January 1919. Peter Clark, of course, in his book called Keynes, the 20th Century Most Influential Economist, implies it was a great, a great book and a brave book. So, firstly, of course, there are many, many writers out there of great credibility who believe still that Keynes has much to say and that that book is such a significant book. I think the second thing I'd say, and I'd, I'd, I'd just briefly mention is that whatever you think of the contents of the book, it, as Churchill himself pointed out, and Churchill was no mean, had no mean pen, after all. He did, after all, win, a literary, he did win the prize in literature. Nonetheless, the book is, is a brilliant read. I mean, you might say, well, they're completely wrong, but what a wonderful read. But in a way, you could say, well, how many books have you read which may be completely wrong, but are fantastic reads? And there is something about the economic consequences of the piece, about style, lucidity, irony, uh, many, many... It also brings in, by the way, a vast number of facts. It's not exactly an anti-empirical book. Those hundred pages on reparations is enough to bore anybody to tears, frankly. You know, if you want to learn about coal in Silesia... Or the Tsarland, go to Keynes. There's a lot of stats in there, a lot of stats. In there. But overall, as Churchill and many others pointed out, it's a brilliant book in style and conception. Uh, some of the most interesting parts of the book, I'll just add this. I actually think the first chapter on Europe, 
where Keynes analyzes the fundamental structural uh, problems facing Europe before the First World War, where he analyzed the four component parts of the European disequilibrium. They're quite often ignored, but actually is a brilliant summation of some of the fundamental structural weaknesses of Europe before the First World War. And then the First World War happens, he calls it a civil war, and that of course accelerates the disintegration of Europe. His book is also a book about European decline. It's really, a, it's a, in a way I, I read it as a nostalgic book. Uh, because Keynes was well aware, and he'd been doing this throughout World War I, he knew the balance of economic power was shifting across the Atlantic. And I don't think he liked it much. Um, and I think there's a nostalgia in the book uh, about a European civilization, a family of Europe itself now fundamentally in irreversible decline. And I think what the book is about, as I read it, in this way, rather than the economic stats. It's a book about how can we make sure that Europe, as a member of the family, this European family, it's a deeply moral book in many ways. It's also a deeply European book. And it, it also, by the way, also contains great insider gossip. So if you like a moral book about Europe, uh, and with, with a few stats thrown in, you'll, you'll like it. The third and final point, and I, I need to end my few remarks here, you, you can't ignore... Keynes after the economic consequences of the peace. As Peter Clark put it, he is one of the great and most influential economists of the 20th century. He went on through the 20s to engage in every single policy debate, the economic consequences of Mr. Churchill, if you remember, Churchill keeping Britain on the gold standard, and then, of course, his fundamentally important work on general theory, which, of course, he developed up at Cambridge, I think largely against the people down here at the LSE, by the way, uh, people like Hayek and people like Lionel Robbins. The free marketeers were down here largely, and the Keynesians and, and, and the entourage were up there in Cambridge. So you can't disentangle how people view the book from the Keynesian economic revolution. Now, I'm not saying all those, therefore, who are critical of the economic consequences don't like Keynesianism, but many of those I've noticed who write against the economic consequences don't like Keynes, and they don't like Keynesianism. I'm overgeneralizing there, but I think you can't disentangle. But the point is, this huge iconic figure of the 20th century went on to do even more after writing The Economic Consequences of the Peace. Later on, the great economist here, Lionel Robbins, who was no great economic agreement with Keynes on many issues, later on said Keynes died for his country during World War II because he simply put his health to one side in order to continue the debates and the, and the struggles against the Americans at Bretton Woods. And in a way, therefore, Keynes is, is such a huge figure in British political life that I think many people have found it much more difficult, therefore, to criticise him, or at least criticise him in the way that some historians have done. So with those few reflections on what is still an extremely important book, although some would argue a deeply flawed one, I'll now pass on to my colleagues. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you. Right, can everybody hear? Can you hear at the back? Well, here's the Treaty of Versailles. Um, it's enormous. <laughs> it's over 400 pages, over 400 articles. Drafted at great speed in six weeks between the middle of March and the beginning of May 1919, at least the German terms. Now, making sense of the Treaty of Versailles is complex, but the way I de deal with it with students, and I guess may also help here, is to see as three main drivers. There's an economic aspect, 
centered on reparations, though not just reparations, in which Mick has just been uh, introducing us to that. Secondly, there's the territorial terms. In other words, the German frontiers is the key issue here. And thirdly, there's the question of security. They're all interrelated. One of the reasons why, in the end, the French government moved to a hard line on reparations was that it saw reparations as a means of maintaining a long-term French occupation of the Rhineland. Territory is obviously closely implicated with the security settlement. So I'm going to refer to those as I go along, but primarily my concern is with the security question. And here the fundamental question is, of course, how were the peacemakers going to prevent something like the First World War from ever happening again? And I think they were well aware at the time that that was the fundamental standard by which they would be judged. And, of course, it's a standard by which, by most analyses, they failed to measure up. It's worth underlining in relation to the overall theme of this festival that in many ways what we're seeing is a failure of liberalism. Yeah? That the three main countries that took part in drafting the terms were the three main big Atlantic democracies, France, the United States, and the UK. They were unable to achieve consensus, and they were unable to put together a peace treaty that was lasting, and many of those involved in the delegations at the time knew that the effort was likely to be unsuccessful. Now, I'm going to concentrate on the security side, and I'm going to concentrate on three main aspects of it. First, I will talk about the League of Nations as one, if you like, quintessentially liberal approach to the problem of how you prevent something like the First World War happening again. Secondly, I will look at disarmament, which is another fundamental aspect of the treaty terms, and one I think that has not received the historical attention it deserves. And thirdly, if you like, if both of those are in some ways modern approaches at the time, they were innovative there wasn't much precedent, certainly for the League of Nations, and not much precedent either for the long-term disarmament of the defeated country. The third approach, which is sometimes called the French approach, centers on the long-term occupation of the Rhineland and on physical guarantees to prevent the Germans from starting another war. So I'm going to look at each of those in turn, and I'm going to start then with the League of Nations. Here is a contemporary cartoon of Woodrow Wilson offering... Uh, a rather large olive branch to the Dove of Peace who wonders how the Dove is going to fly around carrying this branch round. This reflects some of the scepticism about the League of Nations at the time. Now, the League of Nations, of course, is commonly seen as an American conception. Here is Woodrow Wilson on the ship, the George Washington, during his uh, traverse across the Atlantic for the beginning of the peace conference and to be granted initially with a rapturous reception. Um, what I want to argue is that the, peace, the, the covenant, the League of Nations covenant, which forms the first 26 articles of the Treaty of Versailles, is essentially an Anglo-American conception. There was a very clear alternative French vision, which was largely frozen out of the conference negotiations. Then here's Woodrow Wilson um, at, on the George Washington. How long have I got, Matthew, by the way? Uh, you've got about 12 more minutes. 12 more minutes, good. All right. <laughs> Wilson, it's because of Wilson that the, Treaty of, that the League of Nations Covenant is the first thing on the agenda at the Paris Peace Conference when it meets in January. Mm. So between January and February, they primarily concentrate on the draft of the League of Nations Covenant. The reason why it's there, of course, is because it had been the 14th of the 14 points that Wilson had unveiled in January of 1918, and which had become the basis on which the war was brought to an end. 
the armistice of the 11th of November 1918 is a military and technical agreement about military and naval clauses, but it's also a political agreement that the terms of reference of the peace conference will be at least 12 and a half of the 14 points that the American president had set out. And certainly for Wilson himself, the League of Nations was the most important, and it's the first thing he wants put on the peace conference table agenda. Primarily, I think, well, partly it's a vanity project, and much of the criticism of Wilson on those grounds is justified, but also genuinely he believed that if the League of Nations could be set in, in stone and achieved early on in the conference, then everybody would be reassured and would calm down. One of the whole tragedies of the history of the peace conference, of course, is that it fails to achieve that objective. And part of the reason for this is that Wilson was actually very vague about what the League of Nations would actually entail. He wants it. His key concept is that there should be a generalized guarantee against external aggression. And this is what gets built into the League of Nations covenant as Article 10. Under Article 10, the signatories bind themselves to protect each other, their independence and integrity against external aggression. But how they are going to do that is left very much open. It says that if there is such a case of aggression, the League of Nations Council will, dis will deliberate on what to do. Yeah? So read the Article 10. It's, it's vague and potentially contradictory. And that reflects a fundamental uncertainty of purpose on the American side. When Wilson was asked what Article 10 actually meant, was it, in other words, legally binding, he said it was something that was a, a moral statement. Mm. He has a lot of faith in the power of the inter, what we might call now the power of international public opinion. Now, that means really that the nuts and bolts of the League of Nations Covenant are largely drafted by the British. And the work done in grows out of studies done in Cambridge and in London. Among the people involved was Sidney Webb, of course, so there is an LSE connection here, uh, but who had put together in 1915 and 1916 much of the thinking that underlines the League of Nations Covenant, and it's then taken over by an interdepartmental committee called the Fillimore Committee, which meets in 1918, and gets rather sceptical backing from the Foreign Office and from the Prime Minister Lloyd George. Much of Lloyd George's thinking is that he, though he's very doubtful about the League of Nations, he thinks it's something that you can go along with, which doesn't fundamentally affect British interests, but is a way of establishing a working relationship with the Americans at the Peace Conference. So, what particularly weighs here is the work by Robert Cecil, later to become the head of the League of Nations Union, and the South African statesman Jan Christian Smuts. It's from these two that the structure of the League emerges, the idea of an, an assembly, a council primarily representing the big powers and a secretariat. That threefold structure comes from the British Empire delegation. So too do the crucial peacekeeping sections of the League of Nations Covenants, which are Articles 11 to 16. And essentially, what the League of Nations Covenant does not do is outlaw war. There was thinking on the American side that that's what it should do. And, of course, you can see that rethinking emerging again on the American side ten years later with the Kellogg Pact, of, the Kellogg Brion Pact of 1928. Very interesting new book on this called The Internationalists recently come out. The American thinking is in terms, or some American experts are thinking of outlawing war. That is dropped. The British are not prepared to accept it. What the British are prepared to accept is something which will restrict the right to go to war, make it much harder, that nations have to jump through a series of hoops before they can go to war. They should go to arbitration if it's, if it's justiciable. If you can settle it by a legal judgment, you should do it in that way. If that's not possible, then you should go for a political settlement through conciliation. 
if when you've gone through all these hoops at the end of all of this you can go to war yeah but in those circumstances you'll be going to war without surprise yeah without suddenness without any hope of doing it over by christmas the sort of circumstances that the british experts thought had led to war in 1914 will become impossible that's the thinking behind the League of Nations Covenant. And the, the essence of it is really a British conception, I think, rather than an American one. Now, what the French thought, and they're rather sidelined in the League of Nations Commission that drafts the covenants, the French thought that the legal language should be much stronger. The obligations against aggression should be much more rigorous. All that's implied under the British side is what sanctions are applied. Sanctions, uh, sanctions, economic sanctions are automatic, but military sanctions are not. Military sanctions can be recommended by the council, but are not automatic. So the French are looking for something much stronger, much clearer legal language, and backed up by a military staffs committee that will actually do military contingency planning, something that was actually uh, more like the, cover, the charter of the UN and the American thinking for that a generation later. That's not acceptable to the British, and the Americans go along with the British version of it rather than the French. Uh, so there's a kind of spectrum of alternatives here for the League of Nations Covenant, and what actually emerges is one that is influenced by the Americans. The Americans provide the driving initiative, but the British provide the content. That means it's unacceptable to the French. But the French Prime Minister, Georges Clemenceau, always expected the League of Nations to be unacceptable. So that's the League of Nations. Okay, pen portraits of the leading figures. But I want to move on now to the second thing, which is German disarmament. I'm just keeping an eye on the clock here. Here is a, okay, a British tank with iron crosses painted on it. It's a captured British tank being dismantled by the Germans. Um, the second plank of the uh, security provisions of the treaty, the first one is the League of Nations, the second one are the disarmament provisions, which are in part five of the treaty, limiting Germany to an army of 100,000 men, no conscription, no air force, no tanks, no poison gas, no general staff, so they can't do another Schlieffen plan, no U-boats, limiting them to a handful of old battleships, no air force at all, the, and also dis, unable to, dis, to um, garrison or to fortify their western frontier. So the disarmament clauses are rigorous if they are enforced, and they're primarily driven again by the British. The French were not particularly interested in German disarmament, didn't believe it was sustainable, had an alternative vision. The Americans, interestingly, also are on the sideline in the conference disarmament debates. So the initiative comes from the British. And the British are looking with the disarmament clauses. Yes, they believe German disarmament is necessary, but they're also looking at the Americans and the French. They're looking at something more global, rather than a unilateral imposition on Germany. The key thing for Lloyd George is to get the Germans to abandon conscription because then the French will also have no argument for maintaining conscription and maintaining a large army. And this will create a world in which it's relatively safe for Britain to disarm because all of the continental powers will be weakened. What he's looking at at the sea is he doesn't want the German navy to be handed over to the Americans so they could expand the American Navy, which is why there's a lot of private relief in the British Admiralty when the German Navy at Scapa Flow is scuttled by its crews. Yeah? So if you read the disarmament clauses of the treaty, they are prefaced by the argument, the contention, that this should lead on to generalized disarmament, not just something unilaterally agreed to by the Germans. And actually the German government was willing to accept the principle of an army of 100,000 as long as this led on to general disarmament. Now, of course, this is skipping ahead, but at sea there was an arms limitation regime established by the Washington Conference of 1921 to 22. 
On land, it never follows, though there is an attempt by the League of Nations to very ambitious attempt at land disarmament at the Geneva Conference in 32-33, which fails. Now, Germany has disarmed. This is a, a German poster of 1921 saying that Germany has disarmed. In large measure, this is true. Yeah? Between the early 20s and early 30s, Germany hasn't disarmed completely, but it is not in a position to stage a major war. This means that there's a, actually another Second World War is impossible unless Germany can rearm, and a lot depends on the monitoring system. There was a monitoring system. There's a system of allied inspection commissions. The, the control commissions are withdrawn in 1926. This draws attention to a point I'll come back to the end to, about the enforcement of the treaties as well as the actual <coughs> treaty clauses. Anyway, the point I want to bring out is that from the French perspective, and I'll go on for another two minutes, but on the French perspective, which often gets neglected but has been much more studied in recent years, remember the French Prime Minister, Georges Clemenceau, like Wilson, like Lloyd George, comes from the left of centre. He is a progressive. All of these people are not hard-wing, hard-line nationalist militarists. Clemenceau's much preference would have been to keep the wartime alliance with Britain and America into being, in being into, and surviving into the post-war period. He would much prefer cooperation with them rather than imposing extreme territorial and economic demands on Germany. As the conference develops, he realizes he's not going to get that scenario. And also, he thinks that the safeguards for France against German aggression are uh, inadequate. The League of Nations, he thinks, is not worth much. The disarmament clauses, he doesn't think, can be sustained, can't be enforced for very long. Clemenceau has a dismal vision of the future of Germany, and we'll hear more about this in a moment, I think, from the German perspective. But one of Clemenceau's fundamental contentions is the German Revolution of November 1919, which brings the socialists and progressives to power in Germany. This is a kind of masquerade. This is a sham. The German, he says, is always a German, will only respect force, needs to be kept down. Uh, it's a pessimistic view. This means that a lot depends on the German, uh, on the enforcement provisions, and crucially on the Rhineland, which is the dark, green, aided, shaded area on the map. The initial French demand is for the whole of the Rhineland to be separated from Germany and to be turned into buffer states under permanent French military occupation. The compromise reached in March 1919, March-April, is that the Rhineland will be demilitarized permanently. Germany cannot keep troops there, cannot um, fortify it, and will be under Allied occupation for up to 15 years. If you actually read the small print, it can be prolonged beyond 15 years or can be shortened, and in fact the occupation ends in 1930. This is a key reason for saying that the Treaty of Versailles is actually much more flexible than is commonly understood. But that's the key bargain which is struck, and in return for dropping his demands for separating the left bank of the Rhine from Germany, Clemenceau accepts a British and American guarantee of France against aggression, which, of course, is what falls through when the Treaty of Versailles is not ratified. Here's the Chicago Daily News in 1919, recording President Wilson going, appealing to the American people unsuccessfully after he's unable to get his package accepted in the uh, Senate. So the history of the sad history of the 1920s is the French left largely on their own to enforce the treaty, first trying to do so and largely failing with the rural occupation of 1923, and then moving to a path of conciliation. Cons um, arms inspectors pulled out in 1926, Rhineland occupation ends in 1930, 
which means that by the time Hitler becomes Chancellor in 1933, the structure of security put into the treaty has largely been dismantled. Now, just one word of comparison. This is Germany after 1945. Was the treaty too harsh or was it too soft? This is the endless question which Mick raised very clearly in his presentation. Think of the comparisons with Germany after 1945. It loses in perpetuity a quarter of its territory in the east to the Soviet Union and to Poland. The rest of the country is divided into occupation zones and occupied for 40 years. What happens after 1945 is in some ways Germany is treated much more toughly. Mm. But its western sections, think of the Marshall Plan, 1947 onwards, are economically treated much more liberally. Mm. So it's actually a combination of the two approaches. And what makes possible for that is a British and American willingness to accept decades of commitment on the continent, which in 1919 they had not been willing to accept. I'll stop there. So can you hear me at the back and at the front? Yes. Thank you very much for inviting me to take part today. I think it's a fantastic um, event, and I'm so pleased so many of you are here as well, even though it's such a lovely day out there, you're all here. Um, my talk, I think, follows on really well from what David just talked about. You, you now know a little bit about what the Germans were facing and, um, and I'm talking about the reception, the German, the German view of Versailles. Now, when did the peace begin is a question that the German historian Jörn Leonhardt has asked in his recent um, a very large book on Versailles. And as you can imagine, with the anniversary, there are many very large books on Versailles for us all to read. Did peace begin for Germans with the armistice on the 11th of November or with the negotiations in Paris that officially began on the 18th of January 1919? a significant date because it was 48, 48 years ago, before, on that very date, that the German emperor had been declared German emperor at Versailles. So the date was not chosen, mm. um, was chosen deliberately. Huh. Um, and also, I think, is an anniversary that seems to have gone largely unmarked this year. I don't recall many people talking about <laughs> the 18th of January, 1919, but it's an important date. Or did the peace start with the signing of the unloved treaty on the 28th of June, a much debated and fraught decision in Weimar Germany, as we will see? Or did the Germans actually never make their peace with the peace of 1919, and was war only temporarily interrupted, only to be continued 20 years later? Versailles was a German trauma. But that trauma began even before the peace negotiations began at Versailles. And so even though I've only been given 20 minutes to talk about Versailles, which is quite difficult, I think I need to devote some of that time to looking at what happened in the period just before Versailles. Because Versailles was born out of the armistice conditions. And the two are, I think, inextricably linked. And many of the objections that Germans have to Versailles are the same objections that they have to the armistice conditions. So I think understanding how the Germans felt about the armistice is crucial here. So there are five main points related to how the Germans thought about the armistice. The most important, perhaps, and you have here some newspapers from 1914, 
um, is that the war was defensive. And as you can see here in the German newspapers, France is attacking us, or Serbia chooses the war at the bottom, and of course the French newspaper telling the French that Germany is attacking France. And you can find these, of course, all over Europe. Everybody in 1914 is convinced that there is a, theirs is a defensive war, that the others have started it, and that is no different in Germany. So that's the first point. The second point is that the loss of the war when it comes is unexpected in Germany. The armistice comes literally out of the blue for most Germans who were still under the impression that the war could be won. The third point is that as far as many Germans were concerned, the war hadn't actually been lost. Even as late as the 12th of November, so a day after the armistice, uh, Paul von Hindenburg referred to, and I quote, a world of enemies and the successful defense of our fatherland. The fact that there were no enemies on German soil helped to shore up this argument. Instead, German soldiers were still believed to be deep in enemy territory when the armistice was concluded. And another example of this view is a young Josef Goebbels, 21-year-old student in Würzburg at the time, who mused that even though Germany had lost the war, our fatherland has nonetheless won it. <laughs> yes. The fourth point is that the armistice conditions were considered to be overly harsh, and they were only agreed to because Germany had no other alternative. Harry Count Kessler, who would later be a famous resistor to Hitler, called it Clemenceau's act of revenge, which will demand revenge. And somewhat chillingly, he predicted that France in particular would regret this most bitterly. And the fifth point is the so-called stab in the back. The myth that civilians, politicians, had not had the stomach for another winter at war, but that the army could have continued but had been stabbed in the back as these contemporary cartoons show. When it became clear that the war was lost, the military were quick to ensure that the defeat would be blamed on the civilians. So it was not Paul von Hindenburg or Erich Ludendorff or Wilhelm Gröner who had replaced Ludendorff in November 1918 who signed the armistice agreement in the famous railway carriage in Compiègne, but the civilian politician Matthias Erzberger who is here in the center and actually is also here, I don't know if you can make out the, the uh, not very flattering portrayal of Erzberger there, um, stabbing just behind Scheidemann there, stabbing the Germans in the back. Um, and this is he. Um, now it's interesting and I think important to note that the Allies also didn't insist that it was the military leaders who signed this armistice. Obviously they couldn't have known what kind of tale would, would be made of this. But it is important to note, it's not the military who signed, it is civilians who signed this armistice. Now, Erzberger was concerned that Germany would indeed be divided up, as it was in 1945, um, and he feared what the Allies might do if Germany refused to sign. So he managed to negotiate some small concessions, but he had in the end no choice but to sign the armistice agreement and he would pay a heavy personal price for this. Right-wing critics of the New Republic blamed him personally for the humiliation of the armistice, and he was assassinated by them in 1921. 
Now, it's difficult to imagine the conditions in Germany at the end of the war and in the months between the armistice and the Treaty of Versailles, the hunger, starvation, the millions of wounded and dead soldiers. Oh, sorry, here is a wanted poster for the two assassins of Erzberger there when he had been assassinated. And this contemporary cartoon had the caption, don't worry, we only have to pay another 100 million gold marks and then I'll be able to feed you. So add to this the fact that Germany was defeated and humiliated, and you don't get the same sense of palpable relief that the war is over that contemporaries describe in France or in Britain, for example. And here you have some jubilant scenes um, uh, on the occasion of the armistice. In Germany, what you get is more sort of stunned disbelief, and this really doesn't feel like peace. This doesn't feel like what everybody had fought for. And of course, the starvation continued as the blockade continued. That was one of the conditions of the armistice that Erzberger had fought hard to try and undo, but the Allies wouldn't shift on this. And the flu epidemic, of course, takes further victims in 1919. It's estimated that between 500 and 600,000 civilians died during and after the war from malnutrition and diseases related to hunger, plus 350,000 flu victims, which actually means there were more civilian victims in the First World War than in the Second World War in Germany, although that's not something that many Germans know. After the 11th of November 1918, the war was continued in people's heads, so the peace did not start then. And that was not least the case because of the total nature of war. This had included the rallying of people's hatred of the enemies and the use of effective propaganda to paint the enemy as evil. In this total war, Germany had only capitulated once its fighting tower was totally destroyed. Thus, when the war came to an end, it was not a partner for negotiations because it was unable to resume fighting. So ultimately, it couldn't actually do anything else other than accept the conditions. When the German delegation first learned of the details of the treaty on the 7th of May 1919, and when this was reported in Germany, there was outrage in all political quarters. Max Weber concluded that the treaty would, and I quote, discredit the peace, not the war. And this is certainly true in the historiography, where, as we've heard, Versailles has often been seen as ultimately contributing to the outbreak of the Second World War. Even the most pessimistic among the Germans had not expected the draconian nature of the conditions. Philip Scheidemann considered the treaty unacceptable and called it a murderous plan. Gustav Stresemann announced that it might be possible that Germany would perish if it didn't sign the contract, but it, that it was certain that it would perish if it did. The situation was considered so grave that the German government ordered a stop to all public amusements for a week. In parliamentary debates, the treaty was referred to as the continuation of war by other means, with a reference to Clausewitz. So this was not the end of the war either. The German government and its peace delegation in Paris attempted to make counteroffers. They concentrated their efforts, in particular on Article 231, the so-called War Guild article, as they felt that this would undo the moral basis on which the victors' demands were based. 
Of course, the armistice had already included a clause that said that Germany was responsible for all the damage caused. So this was not new, um, but it was just an extension of what they had already signed up to. But other articles also drew heavy criticism. Uh, the articles 227 to 230, which stipulated that Kaiser Wilhelm and certain military leaders should be tried as war criminals, for example. Now, during the period of negotiations in Paris, the Germans did not do themselves any favors. The person sent to negotiate on behalf of Germany, the foreign minister, Count Brockdorf-Ranzau, here the um, uh, third from the right, was in hindsight a terrible choice. His obstinate behavior in Versailles worried some in the German government, not least Erzberger, who threatened to resign if the cabinet insisted on not signing at Versailles. This, he feared, would lead to the breaking up of Germany as the victorious allies would occupy and divide the country. Brockdorf Ranzau certainly took Versailles to heart. He remarked shortly before his death in 1928, and I quote, I already died at Versailles. Today, historians usually evaluate his own role in the events rather harshly. Mm. When the German delegation returned to Germany with a draft treaty to discuss, there was outrage at what it contained. Now, one didn't need to be particularly skilled at propaganda to make most of whipping up an anti-Versailles mood. Germany stood to lose so much, and David already gave a um, short summary of that, and here is a contemporary propaganda poster, what we are to lose, and then it, it shows you territory, population, and so on. One-eighth of its pre-war territory, one-tenth of its population, though not all of them were actually German nationals, 15% of agricultural production, 50% of its iron ore supplies, 25% of coal production, plus all the colonies, an area six times the size of Germany with 14 million inhabitants. And we've heard about all the, uh, the disarmament um, clauses already. After many days of hectic debate, the government resigned on the 20th of June, including Brockdorf Ranzau, and a new one was formed under the leadership of Chancellor Gustav Bauer, and with a new foreign minister, Hermann Müller. At this crucial time, two events worsened Germany's standing in the eyes of the Allies. The scuttling of the German fleet at Scarpa Floe on the 21st of June, and the burning of the French flags, which had been seized during the Franco-German War of 1871. Two to three hundred soldiers like the ones here. I couldn't actually find a photo of the event itself, but it would have looked not dissimilar. Two to three hundred Freikorps soldiers and students set fire to these captured flags from 1871 in front of a statue of Frederick the Great in Berlin on the 23rd of June. Part of the conditions of the treaty had been the return of these flags. Now, I think this event is instructive in understanding the role of symbolism and the importance that was associated um, with the term honor in all of these negotiations. Given what the French have suffered, the idea that they should demand the return of these flags seems astonishing to me, and that the Germans would rather burn them than hand them back is equally as baffling. 
With these symbolic flags destroyed, the French then demanded flags from 1815. So luckily, there were some other defeats to fall back on. <laughs> and of course, that symbolism continued when Hitler, victorious against the French once again, forces them to sign their peace with Germany in that same railway carriage on the 22nd of June, 1940. As German historian Karl-Dietrich Bracher has argued, Versailles affected Germany twofold, as a real strain and as a psychological strain with propaganda-worthy potency. Indeed, the, neg the main negative effect of Versailles on Germany was not, as one might assume, economical, economic, but psychological. Famously, successive Weimar governments supported the efforts of the so-called war guild section of historians and former military leaders, whose job it was to produce propaganda which countered the war guild allegation. And here, for example, is a poster that they produced um, down with the war guild lie, let us leave, uh, let us get away from their side. Um, and the, 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 whole, the sole purpose of this exercise was to, to prove Germany's innocence. And Keynes was indeed a much fated um, by, by these people in that context. And here's another of those propaganda um, posters. Overall, the overall amount of reparations seems staggering. It was settled at 132 billion gold marks in May 1921. But by the time Germany was let off paying reparations in July 1932, it is estimated to have paid 25 billion. So this was, of course, a burden financially, but Versailles' real burden was in terms of anti-republican anti voices which it motivated. The reparations and the allegation of war guilt on which they were based were instrumentalized by anti-democratic forces and served as useful propaganda material both against the German democratic government and against the former enemies. Now, there has, of course, been much debate on whether Versailles was too harsh, too punitive, or not harsh enough, and not just in Germany. Uh, we've heard a few examples already, but also according to AJP Taylor, for example, Versailles lacked moral validity. And in an article in The Economist in 1999, mm. it was referred to as the final crime of the First World War. <laughs> However, as Margaret Macmillan has argued, the Germans would likely have rejected any peace treaty because they couldn't accept defeat. And I think there is something in that. Along with that debate goes the question whether Versailles was a necessary step on the path to the Second World War. Um, in other words, did it contribute directly, more or less, to its outbreak? Without it, Hitler may not have come to power as the anti-Versailles feelings of the German people were a useful propaganda ruse for the Nazis. Many historians now agree, however, that there was no direct line between 1919 and 1939, and that it was the Great Depression of 1929 that proved Weimar's undoing. By 1932, Versailles had been all but revised, though, of course, most of the territorial losses remained. Now, there's an interesting reception to Margaret Macmillan's book published in English in 2001, The, the Peacemakers, which was published in German translation only in 2015. 
You might wonder why. <laughs> there were favorable reviews, but there was a reluctance to accept her argument that Versailles was not the root cause of the Second World War. Mm. For Germans, there was a clear link between the treaty and Hitler coming to power. If this was not so, then a different explanation had to be found, and one that is perhaps more uncomfortable for Germans. By blaming Versailles, one can indirectly blame the Allies for the Nazi Party's rise to power, particularly if Versailles really was too harsh and if it, would be, if it was based on the wrong premise of German guilt. And war guilt, of course, has been debated fiercely in Germany in 2014. Now, I don't have a strong view on this debate about Versailles' role. Who can say whether a more lenient peace would have prevented tensions in Europe from re-emerging? Um, and I think what David just showed us about 1945 seems very convincing that perhaps a harsher peace would have been a better option. But it seems clear to me that without the war of 1914 that resulted in this peace, the history of the 20th century would have looked very different. I began my talk by asking when peace began for Germany, and it's not easy to give an answer, but it is easy to show when peace ended, and that was in the summer of 1914. It took an even more devastating defeat in 1945 to make Germans accept that they had indeed lost the war, and this cleared the way for a peace that has endured more than seven decades. Peace did not begin until 1945, when there could be no doubt that this time the war was definitely lost. Of course, what led to the outbreak of that First World War is even more fiercely debated than Versailles, but at least I know where I stand on that. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, our panelists, for keeping so much of the time as well. We have some, a few minutes for some questions. Um, I think there are some roving mics as well going around the room. If you want to identify yourself, if there's any questions from the audience. Any questions or comments? Yes. We have a, have a mic microphone at the front. Ah, good afternoon. Rupert Wallace, uh, former student here and just member of the public. Thank you very much for a really most stimulating uh, series of, uh, of talks about, about Versailles. There'll be questions more on Europe, but could I just um, break out a bit and just talk about new world disorders and just ask the panel, and I know this is a little bit uh, left field, as to whether they see a direct line between the day of mourning declared in China in 1919 when the news of the Treaty of uh, Versailles came out and, for example, modern Chinese attitudes towards the, effectively, the rules-based order. Do you want to take a few questions, or do you want to...? Um, we'll take, um, we'll take a, yeah, maybe a couple more questions, yeah. if any more. We've got one here. Yeah. No. Uh, thank you. My question is, what difference, if any, would it have made had the United States participated in the League of Nations? One more, anyone more? Um, just a man in the glasses there, right there. Yeah, thank you. Uh, hello, I'm, <clears throat> I'm a third-year PhD student um, in the Department of International History here. Uh, just on the theme of New World Disorders, um, there was a bit of discussion about the British approach uh, 
to the different aspects of the treaty. But to what, is it, um, to what extent did the increasing uh, self-confidence of the constituent parts of the empire, Canada, South Africa, um, mm. you mentioned Smuts, uh, Australia, would go, uh, to what extent um, can we see those powers shaping that British, quote-unquote, approach to the treaty? Uh, yeah. Do you want to go um, in the same order? Yeah, yes. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll pick up on it. I'll, very briefly on each of those very good questions. One on the China, if you like, the China question. I think, you know, part of the historiography, uh, not, not us, I think, but there has, in a sense, been a criticism of some of the historiography. It's far too Eurocentric. And that, therefore, one has to look actually more widely at empire and the importance of empire, race. Uh, you see this in the work of uh, Susan Pedersen recently on Empire and the League of Nations. You can see this in the work of David Vitalis on the, on the whole issue of race uh, and eugenics. And, and, and so I think that is, a, you know, that's not what we were asked to talk about today, but it's certainly something we could add to the discussion. On the question of China, there's absolutely no doubt at all. I visit China quite frequently, and uh, there's two things they talk about quite frequently if they're talking about the past. One is the century of humiliation, which basically means the British opium uh, drug pushing. Uh, which led to our getting Hong Kong and the rest. Um, and secondly, they talk about 1919. And there's no doubt. that it, it, it's, I was at a conference recently where they said, this whole question in America about who lost China and when. Well, it wasn't lost in 1949. It was lost 30 years earlier at the Treaty of Versailles. Uh, and more generally, one can see that the underlying assumptions uh, is a bit more complicated than some have said. But the underlying assumptions are very imperial and great power. Um, you know, it's an attempt, in a sense, to reform empire, but still, it's a reform empire, and it's not the, it's not the transition and transformation. So I think it's very important. The other thing to bring in there, by the way, is, of course, is the racial equality clause that Japan tried to introduce, and that, of course, was, 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 was rejected straight away, which takes me then to the third question on the, on the role of uh, the empire, empire here meaning more the dominions, such as Canada, South Africa, and Australia. And it is, it, there's no question, I, mean, I don't know if this is the question you're asking, but there's no question that uh, this, these, at least two figures at Versailles played a crucial role in the determination of some of the outcome. One, of course, was Jan Christian Smuts, who was, by the way, a very close uh, colleague and friend of, of, of John Maynard Keynes. And indeed, some even argued that it was Smuts who encouraged Keynes to put down his thoughts. Later on, of course, Smuts had, had some qualifications, and he thought he'd got a little bit too far in his uh, polemic. But Smuts's role, of course, both in the Imperial War Cabinet and his critique again. And, of course, Smuts's relationship to Germany had very much to do with his own autobiography, what had happened to the borders in South Africa. And, and you needed, in a sense, an understandable and humane piece in order to stitch South Africa together again. So his autobiography comes into it as well. On the other side of the debate, one, of course, one leader, of course, of, was the Australian leader, Billy Hughes. Uh, the, the great Welsh socialist, as my friends in Wales used to call it. But he was very tough, extraordinarily tough on all this, and toughened up and, of course, pushed Lloyd George in, in a certain direction. But I do think that imperial and dominion dimension has to be brought in. Very quickly on the USA question, I, I, I think my simple answer to that, um, you know, one of the fatal flaws of the whole order of the interwar period was the absence of major powers. And one was the United States of America, and the other one, of course, until briefly, uh, until it joined and then left again, of course, was, uh, was the Soviet Union. And in a way, part of the condition of order, if that's the right word to call it after 45, David, isn't just 
what you say about Germany, it is the United States and the Soviet Union in their different ways and in different roles are major contributors within the framework of a Cold War to, to a new world order. Um, on, on the USA question, uh, this is the question that's the counterfactual that's always asked. Uh, I think in a way it's the wrong way of formulating the question. What you need to look at is what kind of terms could you get a consensus for between Republicans and Democrats in the American Senate. And I think we know that the Republicans would have been willing to accept, for example, the Guarantee Treaty with France. And they would have been willing to accept most of the terms with Germany. The sticking point for them is Article 10 of the, of the um, League of Nations Covenant. And it's actually also a lot of resentment against the settlement over China. So these things are all actually linked together. And Wilson knew, actually, that I think do, doing the deal and making the compromise that he did, which left the, the Japanese in control of a key area of North China, that that was likely to cause great resentment in, in America. Mm -hmm. The kind of tragedy, I think, looking at this, is that Wilson was led astray by the League of Nations. And if he hadn't made the League of Nations so central to his purposes and had just concentrated on a settlement that would reassure the French, that would um, guarantee Germany's neighbours against new German aggression within Europe, that was something that could he, he could actually have got a, a consensus for in the United States and possibly a lasting one. And if that had been put into place, then maybe the French would have behaved differently and been, they had a better ground for conciliation in the 1920s as they did later on in the 1950s. If you want to follow the, the counterfactual through, that, that seems to me the, the, probably the better way to look at it. If the League of Nations had been set up as it was and with the Americans joining it, I don't think it would have actually made much difference because the, what we know from the crises of the 1920s and 1930s is that the Americans retreat deeper into isolation in the interwar years and are actually unwilling to support not only the League of Nations, but also things that they had put together, like the Nine Power Treaty with China and like the Kellogg-Briand Pact. Um, I, I think, actually, I'll stop there. I could say more on the other questions, but particularly on the China question is very important, but I'll hand it back to, to Annika now. Yeah. Um, oh, you've got one there, yeah. I've got one here, yes. I think I don't want to dwell on this because it'd be good to get other um, questions, and I'm not sure I can add much, but I, I do agree with you that, obviously, you, you do want to consider what happens outside of Europe. I mean, for this, the remit wasn't that, and within 15 mm. to 20 minutes, it's difficult enough. But you're absolutely right that those, um, those dimensions are mm. crucial. And the point about China is a particularly interesting one, and I'd very much like to um, attend a talk, actually, on uh, mm. exactly um, the, the, the centenary of, of Versailles in, in, mm. in China, because I don't know um, very much about it, other than that it was clearly, at the time, um, as big a deal for them as, as it was for Germans. Mm. We've got some more hands then. Any questions? Um, we've got one hand here, gentleman there, and Hello. someone over. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, yes, um, Michael Blanning, LSE alumnus, member of the public. Um, have the panel got a favourite peace treaty? I'm thinking of so many peace treaties that fail. Uh, Michael Collins, shortly after the events <laughs> we're talking about, of course, they, they, yeah. they ran into trouble. More recently, the Brexit uh, uh. peace treaty seems to be, uh, seems to be in difficulties. What's a favourite treaty of the, which would compare well with Versailles? 1815 Ooh. or the Treaty of Westphalia? And why? I guess I would say possibly then 1945 for the reasons I just mentioned, that it did 
in, 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 in Europe at least um, among the great powers ushering such a long, unprecedentedly long period of peace. So uh, though it was clearly harsh for Germans, it, it came all right in the end, took a while, but, um, but it did at least um, stop a further world war in Europe. My, my, well, I, I lived in Ireland for over 20 years, I should also point out. And if you're looking at people who sign peace treaties and then get assassinated, then Michael Collins is a, is a pretty good parallel with what you were saying here. I suppose the thing is, if you're going to sign a dodgy peace treaty, don't sign it and get somebody else to do it and let them get assassinated instead of you. <laughs> um, I, the other thing I'd take more generally, and I, I, this is kind of, it's kind of coming left field, whether or not we put too much emphasis on the peace treaty and its consequences, as opposed to the consequences of the war itself, uh, I remember Charles Mayer, a very great Harvard historian, and much admiration, once saying, Keynes should have called it not the economic consequences of the peace. It would have been much more accurate to call it the economic consequences of the war. And if you look at, therefore, the economic consequences of the war, the possibility that you could put to anything together, really, realistically, after 1919, given what had come out of the war, both economically and politically, you know, the likelihood of a stability coming out of the war, it seems to me, was very, very slim indeed, I think. Maybe we, I, well, we're not apologising, but maybe we put too much emphasis on what the peace did not achieve rather than the, the extraordinarily appalling consequences of the war itself. You know, it, it left an American debt situation, by the way, this comes back to the American problem. You know, the Americans were not going to sign off on the, the debts that they had accumulated. They saw those as commercial, not political, and that was another cause. It had clearly undermined Europe. It had fragmented empires, which had led to economic uh, disintegration in Central Europe. And if you add to that the Russian Revolution, hardly a force for stability within, uh, within Europe and in the world as a whole. You know, if you're going to ask the question, is it the best piece? Well, what's your favorite piece? You know, it's, it's the war itself, which is the crucial issue. And I wonder, we focus on the peace. And I wonder if the peace doesn't get it in the neck just a bit too much, whereas we should be looking a lot more at the longer-term consequences of the war, which made any possibility, I think, very, uh, of, of a new equilibrium very, very unlikely, unlike the situation as pertained in '45. That would be my take. David, sorry. Um, well, a, a couple of points. Um, the underlying assumption here is what, what you're fighting a war for, yeah? The Allied leaders were working on the assumption that once they'd achieved a margin of victory and military superiority, they would then, if you like, be able to legislate effectively and to put something into being which would be international law, and that would be the peace settlement, and the Germans would respect it. And that, that turned out to be a fundamental, I think, misunderstanding, where they were actually in a situation where the war was going to continue after the peace in a different form. Um, Clemenceau, I think, actually understood that. I don't think whether <coughs> Wilson and Lloyd George did. <coughs> but that's, that, that's one key, key problem. What, what are you fighting a war for? If it's just to make compromise with the enemy so that you can have friendship in the future, then why, why did, why, what was the need for the violence? Yeah? Especially if you assume that the other side started the war in the first place. That's a key thing to think about. The second thing, and I think both, both Annika and Michael have sort of touched on this already, um, by the time you get to upheavals of the scale you have in the 20th century, it, it's, it's foolish to think that these can be settled by people sitting around a table and negotiating in one go. Both peace settlements actually took a decade. 
Yeah, the, the Treaty of Versailles had to be rapid, considerably and quickly revised. It's best to make, see, see it as part of an overall peace process that includes the Washington Treaties in the Far East, East Asia, and includes also the um, Locarno Treaties and the, and the Dawes Plan in Europe. And even those actually were, turned out to be rather ephemeral. And similarly, the settlement after World War II, of course, um, took, took, it took a decade, really, to, to the mid-50s before the outlines of European stability clearly were coming into place with the um, more or less stable division between West and East. The core of it, of course, was German division. That made everything else possible at the time uh, and the development of the European integration process in the West. Uh, we have a couple more minutes. Have any more questions, maybe from some students at the back? Got someone out? Yeah, on the yeah, in the white uh, jumper. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Great talk. Um, yeah. My question, I guess it, it's kind of falling on. Um, it, it involves. Get on. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> my question is. Why was Germany punished so much? Why was there so much uh, moral guilt? For example, there was an attempt to try the Kaiser you know, for, I don't know, I guess a, a crime of aggression. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, at the end of the war, you are eventually going to have to you know, live with your neighbors. So why take that approach, do you think? Well, I think the... The short answer to that is um, the point I made about everybody thinking that they were fighting a defensive war. And, of course, when the war was over, uh, the victors all felt certain that the war had been started by Germany and Germany's allies. So if you start from that uh, position and you think without Germany wanting to start this war, there wouldn't have been a war, then you've already got a guilty party. Um, and you then look at the destruction um, that that war created in, in France, in Belgium, I mean, just, just looking now at Europe, but obviously um, uh, around the world. Um, and you think, well, these people started it and they caused it. So it finds itself immediately in the armistice um, conditions that Germany has to accept and has to make good the damage it caused. There is then quite a lot of wrangling over what that means in practice and there's a lot of um, debate over what the English and French term aggression mm. means in, in, in German because you can translate it either as aggression, aggression mm. or as um, attack. Um, and, and that gives a different um, flavor. So, so the Germans spend a lot of time saying, well, when we signed up to this, we thought you meant attack. <laughs> we didn't think you meant aggression. Mm. There is a difference there because the Schlieffen Plan obviously required some sort of attack, but that was a military move. That's not a moral judgment like aggression would be. Mm. Um, but so there is a, a complete conviction among, um, among the victorious allies initially that Germany had caused this war um, and that it needed to be punished and that it needed to make good. And that disappears very quickly, of course, in the 1920s mm. and 30s, partly because of the efforts of the German government, who literally pay anyone who will hold a pen mm. and write in their favor to do so. And they have this work translated into English and French to export it, and, and any American and, and French revisionist writings that they come across, they have translated into German. It's a really concerted propaganda effort. Mm. And eventually, people have doubts 
well, maybe Germany didn't actually start the war. Um, mm. Maybe mm. actually it was kind of all of us. Maybe it was the alliance system. Yeah. And you get David Lloyd George's mm. famous saying that the European nation slithered into the boiling cauldron of war. So there's no longer that certainty. Mm. And then if you haven't got that certainty, then you're not even sure you fought on the right side anymore, mm, mm. if you're British. I think for the French, there's never really any doubt, because they were indeed attacked. But of course, for the British, there's then that argument, should we, could we have actually mm. remained neutral? Mm, mm. So that was a very long-winded answer, but I think yeah. it comes down to the fact that in 1918-19, and throughout the war, pretty much everyone in Britain and in France and in Belgium was convinced, and in Russia, that, um, that Germany had started the war. Yeah, just a, just a proviso here on the Keynes, bringing back to Keynes. In fact, I think Keynes was not entirely certain that Germany had started the war, in, in the sense that it was later understood in the war guilt clauses. In fact, one of the writers who influenced him most at this time was a man called Goldsworthy Lois Dickinson, uh, much forgotten. He's a classicist at Cambridge and he worked at the LSE, but he wrote two books on, on the war. One was called The European Anarchy, 1916, and then the International Anarchy, or was it the other way around in 1926? Anyway, the point that Goldsworthy Lowe, who was part of the Keynes Circle, by the way, he was part of the Apostles, he was part of the Bloomsbury set, he was very liberal, and on the liberal side, I think there was a view that one had to understand the causes of the war, not in terms of Germany starting it, but in terms of the system. And actually, Goldsworthy Lois Dickinson came up with this concept of anarchy, namely the system was anarchic. And because the system itself was anarchic, you couldn't find a single responsible actor within it who caused it, namely in this case, Germany. And I think if you read the, the economic consequences, the piece which I've done several times, as you may have gathered by now, actually Keynes very, only mentions once German, German culpability, but basically keeps coming back to this notion that it was a European civil war uh, and not a war of Germany. And aggression. Of course, that in turn influences the way, and he thinks, therefore, about the problem then becomes the war itself, not who started it or who is guilty for having started it. And that, of course, places him in a different place, thinking about what you then do about it. And of course, what he's thinking of, just to kind of just finish the point very quickly, isn't what is the cause of something, but what are the consequences of something, and what do you then have to do to move Europe onto a new stability, a new equilibrium, and a Europe, including, of course, Germany at the centre of that, which would be resistant, as he hoped, both to right-wing nationalism, as in Germany, or indeed, and we haven't mentioned this, of course, the threat of Bolshevism, because the whole point was that if you didn't get Europe and Germany on solid economic and political and democratic grounds, and he believed you wouldn't do this with the Versailles Treaty, then Germany and Europe itself then become far more vulnerable over the longer term to the threat either coming from the extreme right or indeed in the case of Germany. And it was a real threat. It wasn't just an invented threat after all. Uh, the, the threat from the Communist Party and Bolshevism. Sorry, Dave. Well, a couple of quick points. First of all, Article 231, yeah, the, the, the so-called war. Can you hear me? Article 231, the, 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 the infamous war guilt clause in the Treaty of Versailles. Look at where it is. Yeah? It's the beginning of the reparations chapter of the treaty. Mm. 
It's put there in order to justify, set out the legal and moral justification for the Allies' demand for reparations, damage done to their territories, caused by, as they put it, the aggression of Germany and its allies, the war that has been imposed on the Allies by German aggression. It's put there as a compromise. It was put there, I think, by John Foster Dulles, actually, had the key role in drafting it. In fact, the Allies do not demand the entire cost of the war, which is what the extreme position would have been. They ask for reparation for damage done, for actual destruction of orchards in France and coal mines and British merchant shipping and compensation for war pensions. So they actually put the war guilt clause in to set the principle. We could actually demand everything that we've had to pay for this war, but in practice, once you get to Article 232, we are demanding less than this. So Article 231 is put there as a kind of compromise. Now, having said that, the other point, of course the Allied leaders took for granted that German aggression had caused the war. And what one needs to understand here is that um, I mentioned, I think, in the presentation, Wilson, Lloyd George, Clemenceau all come from the left of the political spectrum, left of center. They're progressives in domestic terms. You cannot understand the First World War on the Allied side if you see it as simply a national security war over pieces of territory and uh, you know, na- and um, national national interest in the, and the economic gains in the, in the traditional fashion. It was also supported and was supported for so long by many people in the Western countries because it was seen as a moral and legal issue, a matter of principle that you're repelling German aggression. You must show that aggression doesn't pay. You're fighting to make the war world safe for democracy, Wilson's famous phrase. You're going to create a different kind of world where old-fashioned militarism and and, um, imperialism will be banished, will be outlawed, and will be shown that these things don't pay so that you can rebuild a better and safer, cleaner kind of order. So you cannot understand all this unless you see it in part, as again I think I suggested, as a tragedy of liberalism. That's fundamental to understanding what's going on during the war itself and in the settlement that ends it. Thank you very much. I think we're out of time. Thank you for your questions, and thank you very much, panellists, for a fascinating discussion.